This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by the Feminist Sticker Club. Do you like surprises in the mail, fun stickers, and feminist art? Feminist Sticker Club will send you an original sticker each month for only $2.50. Subscribe or gift a subscription at feministstickerclub.com. This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Welcome to the end of the year, when as sure as champagne punch and party poppers, pretty much every single media outlet deluges readers with lists. Best films of the year, best articles of the year, best dog photos of the year. From the giant piles of pop culture this year, people want to help sort through it by making the very best lists. But bestness is subjective. There's no such thing as the best films of the year. There's just the films whoever is writing the list thinks are the best, or the films the white guys at the Academy Awards think are the best. And of course, there's no such thing as best dog photos. There's just the best dog photos of the extremely biased choosers, which when it comes to dog photos, I'm pretty biased myself. So for this year end episode, instead of focusing on bests, we're focusing on favorites. A big part of Bitch's mission is to serve as a platform for writers and creators to share, highlight, and celebrate the work of people who don't get shared and highlighted and celebrated enough. So I asked some awesome people we've worked with this year to submit a few of their favorite things from 2015. This episode is like a beautiful ball of potpourri with random favorite things ranging from apps to albums, from Texas politics to Trump endorsements. We've got favorite picks from former interns, a famous comic book writer, and a podcaster I greatly admire. This stuff is going to be good, I promise. Okay, let's start off with writer Victoria Law. Victoria is a voracious reader, astounding anti-incarceration activist, and a frequent contributor to Bitch. This year, she read 50 books by women of color. She picked her favorite 10 to share with us. So you read more books than anyone I have ever known in my entire life. Wow. That's okay. true. <laughs> um, can you tell us about uh, your challenge for last year? So this, so for the past couple of years, I set myself a challenge of trying to read 50 books by people of color. And I did this after hearing an interview with science fiction fantasy writer Nalo Hopkinson, who talked about how books written by people of color, particularly books in genres like science fiction or mystery, but overall books written by authors of color tend to get a lot less support from publishers. So publishers are less willing to take a chance on books written by people of color. They're less likely to put their resources behind marketing and promoting this. And that means that you have to work harder to try to find these books and people are less likely to know about them and then less likely to buy them or borrow them from the library. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the publishers then realize that there's, uh, or assume there's not a lot of interest in books written by people of color. So I decided that I was going to take on the challenge of reading 50 books by people of color each year. And this year I changed it up a little bit and I decided that I was going to read 50 books specifically by women of color. And at the beginning of December, I met my benchmark, and I was really delighted by it. Congratulations. And, oh, so you read, you read 50 you. books by women of color. Uh, yes. Wow, yeah. So can you share with us your top 10 list of your favorite books out of all of those ones by women of color that you read? Yes. So my top 10 books of women of color, um, one of the ones that I really loved, and readers might remember the Q&A I did with her, is Zen Cho's debut novel, Sorcerer's the Crown, which is a fantasy book set in Regency England. It has all of the wit and the banter of, say, like a Jane Austen novel, where people just have that really sharp dialogue and that kind of bite around social norms. But then you also throw in magic and fairies and dragons and sorcerers and then you also, and then she also weaves in social justice issues at the time, like racism, imperialism. It's like a fantasy book that mixes in social justice issues by Zen Cho. That sounds awesome. And then also on um, looking at 
fantasy. I read N.K. Jemison's book, 100,000 Kingdoms, which is part of a series. It's three and a half books. So the last half is sort of like a novella. Um, but 100,000 Kingdoms is the start of this series. And it lays, she built an entirely new world in which there are gods who have fallen and been enslaved. There's a palace, there are power dynamics, there are hostages in the palace. Um, and again, it is different people of different skin colors and different, I don't know if you would call them races, but from different, you know, imaginary nations that all have their very distinct cultures and very distinct skin tones and facial features and body types. So I guess what we would say in like, you know, this universe is race, you know, I'm not sure what we would call it there. Um, and it is just a wonderful magical epic that stretches on for three and a half books. And then the other book in the sort of fantasy realm that I really enjoyed, and this was someone that I had never heard before and had picked up her book on a whim was Chitra Banerjee, Divakaruni's The Mistress of Spices. Um, and this is set in the United States. So it's in a world that many readers will know. Most of it is set inside a spice shop. And it looks at some of the social justice issues that people face when they immigrate to the United States, particularly xenophobia and racism and racial violence and hate crimes. But then there's also a back and forth around magic, around spices. It might make you hungry if you're reading it late at night because she does talk a lot about foods and spices as part of this magic. And again, if I had not set out to read 50 books by women of color, I never would have heard of her or possibly picked up this book. And then moving into other genres, I picked up Valen Maitani's Ink and Ashes. It's another debut novel. It's a young adult mystery um, set in Utah in which a Japanese-American family realizes that um, there's a family mystery that they didn't even know existed. And as they set about trying to solve this mystery, you know, they, they start to unravel more and more of about their family's secrets. And it's very much a mystery. It's not about them fighting racism. They're not, you know, fighting back against something else. So it proves that you can actually have people of color be front and center in other genres, not just in one particular type of book. Um, another novel that I really liked, which is also a young adult novel, is Ilyasa Shabazz's and Kekla Magoon's X. Ilyasa Shabazz was one of Malcolm, or is one of Malcolm X's daughters. She was very young, I think two or three three when her father was assassinated. And in this novel, she looks at, or she imagines the details of what Malcolm X's life would be, what were when he was living in Boston, his coming of age in Boston before he went to prison and converted to Islam. Um, and then moving, oh, and then one other book that is fiction, before I move on to the nonfiction part, is another writer that, again, I would not have picked up had it not been for my 50 Books by Women of Color Challenge is Pahlavi IR's Chinese Whiskers, which is set in Beijing. And it's about the changes that happen in Beijing's old neighborhoods called the Hutongs during the time that the Olympic Stadium was being constructed. And it's told by the point of view of two cats. So the entire book is written from the point of view of two cats, which makes it very different than all of these other books I've Read, which are told by the point of view of humans, but it also makes it an, just sort of a, an interesting plot device in which one can see changes around, you know, gentrification and urban development. I'm glad there's at least one book on this list told from a cat's perspective. <laughs> yes, perhaps some other time there can be, you know, a you know list of books written from the point of view of cats. Well, let's let's hear some nonfiction picks. Okay, so. Shortly after I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, I picked up Audre Lorde's Zany, A New Spelling of My Name. And I'd read this book, I don't know, back in high school or a long time ago, and it was just a vague, you know, fuzzy recollection of it. But reading what she calls a biomythography right after reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, I really had an appreciation for the ways in which she describes the experience of the black body. 
as the black immigrant body, the black female body, the black lesbian body, um, and the ways in which um, that black body, what you know, in all of its aspects and all of its manifestations is under attack in the United States. And then another memoir that I really recommend to everybody is Kemba Smith's poster child, the Kemba Smith story. Kemba Smith um, started dating a man who was selling drugs while she was in college. He was abusive um, and she ended up dropping out of college. He isolated her from family and friends. And when he was killed, she was actually arrested as part of um, a conspiracy and because she was his girlfriend and because they were the police and the federal agents were no longer able to get him on federal drug charges, they instead charged her. And her memoir opens with her experience being pregnant and giving birth while in county jail. Wow, that sounds really intense. And then still on the prison, you know, still looking at prisons, another book um, that I found super, super interesting, fascinating, and informative, but also, you know, kind of challenging even for me, is Ruth Wilson Gilmore's Golden Gulag, which looks at how California built up to become the prison state that it now is. California has either one of the highest incarceration rates, if not the highest incarceration rate um, in, you know, in the country. It, you know, didn't start this way. And Ruth Wilson Gilmore goes through the economic, political, and um, social circumstances that made California decide to on incarceration as a way to try to supposedly, you know, kickstart itself um, into what it is. And then finally, I want to thank you, Sarah, for recommending uh, Americana to me because I have read all of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's novels after that. And so I picked up We Should All Be Feminists at a bookstore table where I saw it on a bookstore table. And then I spent the next couple of hours standing in front of that table, tearing through the book. I laughed out loud, probably staring people at her reflections um, on how feminism or awareness about feminism played out in her life. All right, so now you have 10 new favorite books to go pile up on your bedside table. Our next favorite comes from the Bronx. Writer Catherine Gonzalez shares with us her favorite feminist squad of the year, the New York skate crew Brujas. Brujas, an all-Latina skate crew from New York City. Brujas, literally witches in Spanish, was organized by Ariana Maya Hill and Sheila Grullón for young women of color to practice and engage in skate culture. In the Bronx, Brujas have completely shifted the dynamics of the River Avenue skate park, cultivating an inclusive space for everyone, regardless of race, age, or gender identity. Since 2014, their membership has expanded, including skateboarders of color ranging in age from 15 to 27 years old from all around New York. In many Latin American cultures, people turn to brujas because they are these intuitive channels between the spirit world and issues in the real world. And in New York City, brujas, the skate crew, also channel their energies and intentions for their skate practice while engaging in critical discussions with other POC about the realities of misogyny, state violence, and gentrification. Brujas is a community where marginalized folks can come together and feel empowered, all while taking photos, videos, or practicing their first ollies. And they're always open to new members. So if you're a woman of color skateboarder in New York, be sure to hit them up. Leave a DM on their Instagram at wearebrujas. Again, that's wearebrujas. Or check them out in real life at their regular spot the Riverview Skate Park on the corner of 157th and River Ave in the Bronx.
You can see amazing photos of the Bruja skate crew. Catherine wrote a profile about the skaters for Bitch earlier this year. Just go over to bitchmedia.org and search for Brujas. And now, a favorite pop culture pick from writer S.E. Smith, who has a lot of deep thoughts about television. When Bitch Magazine approached me to ask about my favorite moment in pop culture in 2015, it was a tough call. There was a lot of great stuff happening, whether we were talking about women's rights, medical ethics, and all sorts of other delicious things. For me, though, the real defining moment may have occurred in just a few moments of Scandal's mid-season finale. Honestly, hearing Melly Grant and Susan Ross fight for Planned Parenthood was a filibuster was amazing enough. I loved the inclusion of actual pork barrel budget allocations, like talking urinal cakes. But it was Olivia's abortion, which appeared on screen for less than 15 seconds, which was a defining moment for American television. It's not the first time Shonda has shown an abortion on TV, and it likely won't be the last, but that doesn't make it any less radical in a television landscape where we almost never see abortion, and when we do, it's depicted in a negative way. Seeing Olivia alone and vulnerable in an abortion clinic could have been isolating and sad, but instead it was empowering. She's a professional woman who knows what she wants, and she knows she doesn't want a child. In preceding episodes, we've been watching Olivia struggle with her new role as First Lady. Entering the White House at the President's side requires playing a role, and it's a highly restricted one. This episode was about finding autonomy in multiple ways, but above all, about making choices. Every character ended up making a choice that was right for her, or him, to take control of their lives. For Olivia, it was an abortion and the decision to leave the White House. The episode was particularly poignant because of what happened a week later. We were reminded of how real the abortion fight is when Robert Louis Deere entered a Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs and started shooting. Three people were killed and more were injured. Abortion providers, like the one who calmly cared for Olivia, are in danger on the job every day because of conservative politics. The con same conservative politics that were being advanced in Congress in this very episode. When Deere shouted, I am a warrior for the babies in court, it undoubtedly rang a bell for other domestic terrorists who view medical clinics that happen to provide abortions as targets. Throughout 2015, Rhymes was taking on tough issues like rape, sexuality, and ethics, but she really brought it home on Scandal. In 2016, a year when political commentary and pop culture will be even more important, she's going to bring her A-game. And I, for one, cannot wait to see it. So if you listen to this podcast, you know that we publish an episode of Backtalk or Propaganda every single week without fail. We only ran one rerun this entire year. That means I've interviewed a ton of people in 2015. I estimate that each week I interview at least two people for bitch, which means I've talked to over 100 very interesting feminist media makers this year. One of my absolute favorite people to interview in 2015 was Kelly Sue DeConnick, the writer behind the comic book series Bitch Planet and Pretty Deadly, both of which are original boundary-pushing works in the world of comics. Since she's one of my favorites, I asked Kelly Sue to share two of her favorite things from the past year, whatever she wanted to give a shout-out to. Listen up. Hello, bitch. This is Kelly Sue DeConnick. I'm the writer of Bitch Planet and Pretty Deadly and some television and various other things. I am going to submit two favorite things for this year. And the two things that have been the most meaningful and life-changing for me have been, uh, on the large scale, the Black Lives Matter movement, which I, I, I think I am humbled uh, uh, to, to inarticulate status uh, trying to talk about it. I think it has been uh, an extraordinary and beautiful rising up. 
And then my more personal choice is um, Ryder Carroll's bullet journal methodology, which has been incredibly useful to me, has uh, renewed my love of note-taking and sort of made me feel like a student of my life, uh, which is the thing that I enjoy, and um, has also helped my 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 memory <laughs> tremendously, which is a real thing at this point, um, and uh, just kind of taking back analog life has uh, has has been a real shift and uh, and a delightful one, and that's what I have. Have a happy new year. I'm here with Bitch's Development Director, Kate Lesniak. Hi, Kate. Hi, Sarah. Kate, you watch a lot of sports. I think you're maybe the sportiest person I know. I play a lot of sports, and I watch some select sports, so yeah. But I t- I'll take that as a compliment. Sorry, I meant to say you dominate at a lot of sports. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Another compliment. So I wanted to ask you about your favorite sports moment from the year. Can you pick one? Um, I think my favorite sports moment was not necessarily the playing of the Women's World Cup or the fact that the United States won the game. It was actually after the game when Abby Wambach ran up into the stands and gave her partner a huge kiss in front of, I think it was like 23 million viewers. I mean, they're lesbians, they're kissing on mainstream TV, and the camera stayed on them, and I thought that was amazing. So that's my favorite sports, non-sports moment. Everything they touch is turning to gold here in Vancouver! And this week, of course, is sad because Abby Wambach just is retiring this week after 14 years playing professional soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been watching Abby Wambach tribute videos, crying your eyes out? Um, I, I wasn't crying yesterday, but it did make me nostal- nostalgic for my sports playing days when the ESPN.com video came out of Abby Wambach's teammates all like remembering how amazing she is and talking about how she hasn't just led them to be better soccer players, but also to be better people all around. And I think that that's really what sports are about if you're part of a great team. And you, like, almost played soccer with Abby Wambach, right? Um, that's a major, <laughs> um, major overstatement. Uh, she is, I think, like six or seven years older than me, but she grew up in Rochester, New York, and I'm from Buffalo, New York. And I grew up hearing about her as, like, the legend from down the 90, who would just come in and head the ball into the net past every single high school soccer player on the field. So... Yeah, um, I, I wish I was a little bit older so I could have played against her, but maybe I didn't because, you know, I would have been dominated. So, <laughs> yeah. You could have lost to Abby Wambach and it would have been beautiful. Yes, she's one of the only people I would like to lose to. So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have one more favorite pick from our development director, Kate Lesniak. Kate, I wanted to ask you about your favorite Trump endorsements of the year. We're all like screaming about Donald Trump in the office. Um, Tell us about your favorite Trump endorsement moment from the year. So I think favorite, I have to qualify that by like favorite. I just mean like the other really like stupid, like terrible people in this world who would think that uttering Donald Trump's name for any other reason than just totally putting him down or completely like distancing themselves from his ideas um that's what we should i mean by favorite but um i heard that tom brady and donald trump are friends and instead of also distancing himself from like the homophobia bigotry um islamophobia xenophobic everything that donald trump does tom brady has said that he enjoys playing golf with donald and that he thinks he's a smart guy because he's had three different careers um i wouldn't necessarily call that smart i would just call that white straight male and rich um and that's all there is to it Um, My second favorite endorsement is that Vlad over in Russia thought it was a good idea. Um, Of course, we're talking about Mr. Putin um, to endorse Donald Trump because, of course, he'd love to have another fascist white guy running a majorly powerful country in this world. In the impact segment tonight, is there a Trump Putin bromance going on? Donald Trump has promised that he would get, quote, get along very well with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And in a three-hour press conference Thursday, Putin seemed to endorse Trump's sentiment, calling Trump a, quote, bright and talented person and the absolute leader of the presidential race. 
Um, and that just came in this morning. So um, thanks, Tom, and thanks, Vlad, for your support of Donald Trump. I hope literally no one follows in your footsteps. So speaking of terrible politics, our next favorite comes from Texas. Writer and political advocate Hillary Ann Crosby is passionate about making her home state more equal. Among many adventures, she's editor-in-chief of The Vagina Zine, a zine that publishes opinions and observations from self-identified women. The news from Texas has been particularly depressing this year, with the state government fighting to stop Syrian refugees from resettling there and taking action to try and close 10 abortion-providing clinics in the state. So I asked Hillary Ann to share her favorite moment from Texas politics this year. There had to be at least one, right? So in Texas, our state legislature meets in odd-numbered years, which means that a whole heck of a law went down in 2015 when it came to Texas politics. And honestly, I was not happy about most of it. But one thing that I did like was the passage of a state law that criminalizes so-called revenge porn. The law went into effect back in September, and it makes it a Class A misdemeanor to share intimate images of someone, like a sex tape or nude photos, unless you have that person's express consent. Folks who violate the law can face fines of up to $4,000 and a year in jail. Now, it's not a perfect law, and there are definitely those that worry that it is too broad or that it's opening up the door to overstepping freedom of speech laws. But given how terrifyingly easy it is to victimize someone on the internet, I'm thankful for this small step toward justice, especially in a state where our private lives and our sex lives in particular aren't often afforded that same respect. So thank you to Texas State Senator Sylvia Garcia and all the representatives from both sides of the aisle who came together to make the passage of the revenge porn legislation one of my favorite things about Texas politics in 2015. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. And one of my absolute favorite shows is Note to Self, the WNYC show about the human side of technology. Host Manoush Zamarodi is always sharing personal feelings and deep insights on how things like smartphones and data collection affect our brains and behaviors. I really trust Manoush's take on technology, so I asked if she would call in to tell us about some of her favorite apps of the year. She said yes. Here we go. Hello, Propaganda. Bitch ladies, it's Manoush, the host of the podcast Note to Self. You have asked me to name my three favorite apps that are on my phone right now. This is something that I feel very, very strongly about. So thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to gush a little bit. My phone as a working mom is... um, It is just the way that I am able to be in so many different places at the same time and keep my head on straight. Sometimes not so straight, but I do my best. Okay, so coming in with my top apps, Pocket. If you are not on Pocket, it is great. I save all the articles that I don't have time to read there. It strips it of all the ads. It gives you a lovely reading experience. Um, I have to admit, I have thousands of articles in my pocket right now um, that I haven't read, but just the fact that they're in there, I know that they're waiting for me, that feels good. You can also follow people on pocket, and since I um, was one of the first users, suddenly I'm like, I'm big on pocket now that they've made it so you can be social on there, which is weird. Okay, coming in at number two, Todoist. I have tried so many list-making apps Maybe this isn't very sexy, but I love this list-making app. It's kind of GTD, getting things done for you business nerds out there if you're into that. Um, I just like it because I can color code it and make it kind of like fun and pretty, but also like it looks nice and it's 
keeps me on track. You can schedule what's going on today, tomorrow, week ahead. I'm a fan. Okay. Now, I told you, this is this is nutrition apps. This is not fun apps. This is nutrition. In this case, literally nutrition app. Um, because my fitness pal is my last nominee. I really decided about six months ago that I wanted to stop eating so much t- uh, refined, processed flour and sugar. And um, I had to take a hard look at my protein intake, ladies. I had to take a hard look. And my fitness pal helped me do that. And I really upped the amount of protein that I take in every day. And it's the truth. I don't have that afternoon crash anymore. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love my candy. But, I'm, you know, instead of a slice of toast, I'm going to choose an egg. Because I know that it's going to keep me going for longer. I've seen the proof. I've logged the proof in my app. Um, that's all I got for you. Those are my three favorites. They're very useful. I have weird stuff on here for my children, like Lunchbox Kitty, and, um, I have a first aid app on here just in case something bad happens. I'm very morbid. Um, oh, any mom knows about Reader, um, app. Yeah, I'm digressing. Those are my three faves. I love you guys. Thank you for asking. I hope this does the job. Happy 2016. Bye. All right. Hi, this is Sarah again. And I'm here with our new media intern, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Catherine, we all spent a lot of time this year being uh, really pissed off about various things. And one of those things, of course, was the constant threat of defunding Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I believe you have a favorite to share with us that relates to this. Yes. What's your What's your favorite that you're going to share? So I'm going to um, share my favorite reaction to the defunding of Planned Parenthood um, by Elizabeth Warren. And this was in um, August um, when she was on the Senate floor and before the, the first bill got passed by the House in September. And she told them, um, do you have any idea what year it is? Did you fall down, hit your head, and think you woke up in the 1950s or the 1890s? Should we call for a doctor? Because I simply cannot believe that in the year 2015, the United States Senate would be spending its time trying to defund women's health care centers. You know, on second thought, maybe I shouldn't be that surprised. The Republicans have had a plan for years to strip away women's rights to make choices over our own bodies. I just felt like that pretty well encapsulated encapsulated what we all of our anger toward this defunding of such a critical organization i love that elizabeth warren said that like in a in the public record yeah in front of people who had actually made the vote yeah exactly like she like let let her anger show and get out and just like at the ridiculousness of of the whole idea and yeah i feel like that's something that a lot of us have said but not in front of congress can you read that first line again i love it yeah do you have any idea what year it is did you fall down hit your head and think you woke up in the 1950s or the 1890s that's great (laughs) Thanks for sharing in this moment of Elizabeth Warren with us. Of course. Thank you. Cartoonist Erica Moen creates the comics series Oh Joy Sex Toy, a weekly illustrated guide to sex toys and other aspects of sexuality. We syndicate the series at Bitch, and it's always a hit. Erica is always up to something interesting. So I asked her to share one of her favorite things of the year. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't actually have to do with sex at all. It's a book and not even a comic book. What a surprise. My name is Erica Moen, and my favorite thing this year is the Giver Quartet, which I realized didn't actually come out this year, but I discovered it this year. And that is all four books of the Giver series together in one great big book which was super awesome for me because I only knew that The Giver was the one first book, which I loved in sixth grade. Uh, And then this year I found out, oh my God, there's a sequel and a threequel and a fourquel. And I read them all this year and I love them so much. And I want everybody to know that you can read an entire series. It's brilliant. It's so good. Lois Lowry writes real good. Okay, 
Well, we've got to have some favorite sexy thing on the show. Don't worry. This year, Grace Munger worked as a new media internet bitch. She wants to share her favorite music video of the year. Well, not just any music video. Her favorite female masturbation-themed music video. Anyone who knows me knows how excited I get when pop culture discusses women and self-pleasure, which is why I've been so obsessed with First Got Horny to You, a music video by the women of Saturday Night Live. I was in seventh grade watching TRL when I had a feeling I had never felt. It was Carson Daly in enormous jeans and the blackest nails I'd ever seen. I got up on the couch and I knocked my first one out. 1996, I first heard him about started getting sweaty about thermal top. Taylor Hansen's lips and his long blonde hair, the most gorgeous woman anywhere. And that's how I could tell for tell that I was gay as hell. In it, Cecily Strong, Vanessa Bayer, Elizabeth Banks, A.D. Bryant, and my fave Kate McKinnon sing about their 90s celebrity crushes. The fellas who first ignited their flames, as McKinnon says, and first inspired them to explore masturbation. SNL definitely has its problems, sure, but I'm kind of loving the current women of the show. In the music video, they make up a classic 90s girl band, complete with white denim outfits, scrunchies, and choreographed dance. They sing, one by one, about the first time they had that tingly feeling and started to get sweaty in their thermal shirts. The 90s references are really spot on, which makes it even better. What I love about this discussion though, about female masturbation, is it feels like one big inside joke for those who have been there. Bayer's knowing look at the shower head, A.D. Bryant sitting on her hands and scooting across her bedroom floor. It's all about that really awful time frame of not knowing what the hell was going on with their bodies and not having anyone to talk about it with either. Go to YouTube and watch the video and try not to laugh reminiscing about your first time too. One of the people who helps make this show happen every week is our producer, Alex Ward. He's the one who helps record interviews, who drops in music, who uses the magic of editing software to make us all sound good. He's usually behind the scenes, but for this last episode of the year, he's getting behind the microphone. Ugh. Sometimes I'm so corny it hurts. This is what Alex has to listen to every week. So take it away, Alex. Well, thanks, Sarah. Uh, I want to talk about my favorite comedy special of the year. I'm a big comedy fan, and there was a lot of good stuff this year. And actually... My favorite one this year, uh, it came out last November, I believe, but I didn't watch it, I think, until February or March. So for me, that counts as my favorite of the year. Anyway, it's Chelsea Peretti's special called One of the Greats. Let's do this! I am the shit! I like to get into a stand-up stance, you know, just I always put my arm here so you guys will be like, uh-oh. Looks like this comedian's probably going to be telling it like it is. Not only is... The comedy great, like the actual stand-up, but uh, she really plays with the idea of like a typical one-hour comedy special. And what I mean by that is she uh, she injects a lot of kind of playfulness uh, in terms of the, the shots of the audience that you're used to seeing during comedy specials. She kind of makes these surreal little scenes happening out in the audience or when she's on stage and she glances off stage or something or, or she looks backstage, um, she'll insert a weird little like vignette or a weird little uh, tableau of people doing something backstage. Um, so the actual stand-up special itself is really original and also really hilarious. So that would be the stand-up comedy special I'd recommend. And my favorite of the year, Chelsea Peretti's One of the Greats. Get it on Netflix. Happy New Year. Bye. And now, some poetry. Jess Kibler is a copy editor for Bitch, who also works at Powell's Books, the legendary bookstore in Portland. 
I asked Jess to rifle through the shelves and share some of her new favorite poems of 2015. Hi there, my name is Jess Kibler and I'm a writer and a bookseller at Powell's Books in Portland. As this information about me likely suggests, I happily spend a lot of my time reading. Today, I'm going to tell you about two new poetry collections that I loved this year. The first is Divinity School by Portland poet and Torah scholar Alicia Jo Rabins. I'll read a bit of Sunday School, one of my favorite poems from the collection. Sunday School. Look around this cafe. Everyone is reading the New York Times and talking, which all adds up to a clamor of breakfast noises and a mosaic of Sunday papers. Look at this messy cartoon I call my life, which does not know whether it is living or being lived. It happened again on the way here. A man looked at me on the subway, directly, meaningfully, brazenly. This is a different way of being a woman, which I always disdained, complained, refrained from, and now something must cry, look at me, look at me, and the thrill of being looked at quivers me to attention. Being noticed, like noticing, has a sharp blade. In Divinity School, Rabins blends the mundane with the divine in stunning, clever ways. Divinity School is a collection I'll be returning to often. Another collection I loved this year was Voyage of the Sable Venus by Los Angeles-based poet Robin Costa-Lewis. Here's Summer. Last summer, two discreet young snakes left their skin on my small porch two mornings in a row. Being postmodern now, I pretended as if I did not see them, nor understand what I knew to be circling inside me. Instead, every hour I told my son to stop with his incessant back chat. I peeled a banana and cursed God, his arrogance, his gall, to still expect our devotion after creating love and mosquitoes. I showed my son the papery dead skins so he could know, too, what it feels like when something shows up at your door, twice, telling you what you already know. Voyage of the Sable Venus won the National Book Award for Poetry this year. In the collection, Lewis brilliantly examines race and womanhood and identity as a whole. These poems are nothing short of spectacular. So there you have it, two excellent poetry collections to finish off the year. Happy reading! Oh, hello. Hi. (laughs) It's Sarah again. I'm here with Amy. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) It's almost the end of the year, Amy. Yes. Phew. I'm uh, wiping the sweat (laughs) off my brow. (laughs) It's been a sweaty, sweaty year. (laughs) Um, This show is all about favorites. Mm -hmm. You're here to share some favorites with us. What favorites are you sharing? Um, So I actually... um, love Twitter. <laughs> I love Twitter too. Yes, I think it's really useful especially if you're able to like curate, you know, uh, who you want to follow mm-hmm. and get the type of news and information and slash entertainment that you want to get. I always get a little pissed off when people make Twitter the butt of a joke. I feel like people who don't use Twitter or um, diminish pop culture of today are like, are like use, use Twitter as a punchline all the time. Like what? It was, it was on Twitter. And I'm like, Twitter is really powerful, you guys. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, like, I hear stories about back in the day when, like, television was first invented. <laughs> and people would say, like, oh, you're, when you watch too much TV, it'll rot your brain. We'll and, never give up vaudeville. Right. I don't know what's going on. But, but Twitter is, like, a really excellent place um, to just sort of, like, bypass a lot of, like, uh, things that might get ignored or, like, uh, not covered as much in big mainstream media outlets. So, and then also you get just get to learn so much. I learn so much from folks on Twitter, um, and it actually really um, helps me with like my feminist analysis and critical thinking. Uh, if you follow the right folks, um, the thing is that you know you and you can also just go on it to learn about random dog facts. Yes, I think Twitter is dog facts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I'm not following the right dog facts accounts, but um, I was going to say uh, a deep thought about how Twitter, you know, blah, 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 is democratizing media because it's kind of an equalizer in your voice. You don't need to have a lot of money. You don't need to have a fancy job to be a person on Twitter people listen to. Like, if you 
have smart opinions and you share them and you're and you're talking about current events, people are gonna notice and they're gonna listen to you. And there are like an abundance of like amazing gifts and vines that get reshared on there. You can spend <laughs> hours just scrolling through all of I I feel like your Twitter feed from the way you're talking about it, it's probably 95% dog facts and gifts and like 5% awesome social justice people. Sarah, I will not take you judging me any longer. <laughs> uh, so I want to share uh, four folks who I really enjoy their feed. I mean, there are definitely other people that I, I just don't have time to talk about, but these are four folks that like, I consistently love what they're posting and I think that they need more people to check their stuff out. So your four favorite people on Twitter this year Yes. Don't get enough attention. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Because there's lots of people on Twitter who are great, but like have like 10,000 followers. Right. Exactly. Okay. So uh, one of my first is um, her name is Eve Ewing. Uh, she's an academic. She's a PhD candidate at Harvard and she's a black woman. And I got turned on to her because um, I, I want to say a couple months ago, she did this uh, like tweeting thing where, <laughs> duh, she's on Twitter, <laughs> where she talked about like the experiences of being a black academic. Oh, cool. And then, and, uh, and then also in her feed, she talks a lot about social justice issues and just like really insightful, thoughtful things. And then through her, I found a, like a handful of other amazing um, like black Twitter thinker folks mm -hmm. um, that like I just keep learning new stuff. And and I just want to give like these people credit because like I learned so much that's like that really informed my feminism. And I think that these folks should get credit. So definitely Eve Ewing. And there's, what's, what's her handle on there? Her handle's at Eve Ewing. And her last her name is spelled E-V-E-E-W-I-N-G. Cool. Yeah, so check her out. Um, and another folk is a longtime bitch contributor. Her name is Tina Vasquez. Uh, I love Tina Vasquez. Yeah, Tina's great. And she just became the Immigration Reporting Fellow at RH Reality Check. Yay, Tina! Yeah, she, she does such great work. Like, like she is just like, laying under the radar but so smart um such good insight and like such good reporting um and her twitter feed is like sometimes really gut-wrenching because um she'll also she'll often talk about um her immigrant background um about her father uh sometimes she has like some great amazing tweets about avocados because <laughs> she really loves avocados and i really enjoy those tweets <laughs> um but I just, I just really appreciate her voice, and like she's, she's just done amazing work for Bitch, and she's definitely a writer um, and a journalist that I think like people should put, put their eyes on. Um, another person is oh wait, what's what's Tina's handle? Oh, Tina's handle is at the Tina Vasquez, no spaces or underscore. And the next folk, the next person is Bonnie Amore, and uh, Bonnie's handle is at Bonnie underscore Amore. And Bonnie is spelled B-A-N-I underscore A-M-O-R. And um, in Bonnie's little Twitter bio, it says, Decolonizing Travel Culture. And they are a queer travel writer from Brooklyn by way of Ecuador. And um, uh, Bonnie has a website where they write about um, travel writing. And it has such an amazing social justice feminist lens. Because oftentimes when we read travel writing, uh, it comes from a very um, sanitized, like homogenous white lens. And like... I. I legit always learn something new when I read Bonnie's writing, like like without a doubt. And as a person, as a person, a non-black person of color uh, who's an American citizen who like lived and traveled abroad for a few years, um, like I did some really fucked up problematic things like in my time, and I'm like totally willing like to admit it, like racist col colonial bullshit because I have like this proximity to whiteness as like an American citizen. And um, the thing is that like. You know, coming back now and reflecting on that from when I did that a few years uh, years ago, um, I didn't have the language to describe my behavior, right? And in reading Bonnie's work, I'm like, wow, like, like Bonnie is giving me these words to describe like what this behavior is, what it means, and how it perpetuates like really awful things. That's really powerful. Yeah, and and like like I, I I'm really excited for like to read more about Bonnie's work and then also to like maybe. Uh, get them to write more for bitch too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I found out about Bonnie Amore's work uh, because they pitched a story about slut walk Ecuador, like a like a slut walk happening in Ecuador. It was really interesting. Um, and I loved that piece. So yeah. More please. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, and then finally, um, my last Twitter suggestion is Aparna Nancherla. So she's a comedian. Awesome comedian. Super funny, super underrated. Um, I just recently learned that 
uh, she's a staff writer for the Seth Meyers show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Not a big fan of the Seth Meyers show. <laughs> just because I'm not a big fan of white dudes all the time. But I'm happy for her because she's getting paid. I'm glad she's in the writer's yeah, room. Yeah, exactly. And uh, she's such a great, like, low-key, like, underrated comedian. Um, such amazing, like, one-liners. And her Twitter feed is just, like, full of them. Uh, so he, I just I just randomly picked, like, three of my most recent tweets that she wrote. And her uh, handle is at Apar Napkin. So, so it's like Apar Napkin. Yeah. So it's, like, her name. Yeah. But with napkin. napkin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so those are some folks that I suggest checking out on Twitter. Thank you so much for sharing all those people, Amy. Yeah. Also, you can follow me. Oh yeah. <laughs> I actually. Oh, I just thought to plug myself. <laughs> How about um, I'll plug you as my oh. favorite person oh, on Twitter this really? year? Yeah. I mean that's a lie, but I'll do it. It's a lie. <laughs> Don't tell lies! <laughs> oh my god, it's a lie and it's insulting to me now. Uh, my favorite person on Twitter this year is is Amy Lamb. Oh, okay. Her handle is Amy Adoisey. Yes. Uh, it's A M Y. Let me see if I can remember this from memory. A M Y A D O Y Z I E. Yes. Amy Adoisey. Yes, I'm doing the um, clapping emoji now. You have a really great Twitter feed. Um, sometimes I go through and just read all your tweets and try not to retweet them all because that's creepy. <laughs> I think I'm. I have a. I'm good at retweeting other folks. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. It's a good. It's a good curation of yeah. like, really interesting news, social justice stuff, cool essays, and funny jokes. Yeah, and then um, sometimes. Uh, and sometimes some dog facts. This is Sarah again, your show host. I'm here with the new media intern, Catherine, who you remember from earlier in the show when she talked about her favorite moment in Planned Parenthood defunding, that great quote from Elizabeth Warren. Um, Hi, Catherine. Hello. Catherine, how old are you? 23. So Catherine, you are connected to the youth culture of today. (laughs) Yes, I am. I guess you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes me sound like a million years old to say that. Um, All right. what's, What's your second favorite moment you wanted to share with us? Yeah, I wanted to share my favorite young feminist, and maybe that's kind of ironic, because I am a young feminist, but under the age of 20. All right, who is it? Amanda Stenberg. And who is Amanda Stenberg, if people don't know? Amanda Stenberg is um, an actress, and she was on The Hunger Games. She starred as Rue, my favorite character. I love Rue. I know, love Rue. Um, Yeah, and I just, I really find that over the past year, especially, she's been really active in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, her social media, her Tumblr, and she also posted a YouTube video, um, Don't Crash Crop crop on My Cornrows. Um, Wait, what's it called? Don't Cash Crop on My Cornrows. Um, And it's an awesome video, about four minutes long, talking about the cultural appropriation. So black hair has always been an essential component of black culture. Black hair requires upkeep in order for it to grow and remain healthy. So black women have always done their hair. It's just a part of our identity. Braids, locks, twists, and cornrows, etc. Cornrows are a really functional way of keeping black textured hair unknotted and neat, but like with style. So you can see why hair is such a big part of hip-hop and rap culture. These are styles of music which African-American communities created in order to affirm our identities and our voices. Cool, that was a video from Amanda Stenberg. That's Catherine's favorite young feminist under the age of 20. Thanks for sharing here with us. Thank you. We're going to close out the show with some music, new music for you to love. Musician and writer Jordana Elizabeth put together her 10 favorite albums of the year from female-fronted bands. Listen in. I listen to a lot of music, so choosing my 10 favorite albums this year was tough. But after much debate, here are my picks. Number 10, Georgia Ann Muldrow's A Thought of Verse Unmarred. I'ma be fine, finely designed. My heart do the beating, but the blood ain't mine. My sense of time's intertwined deep with the great blacks. Standing in my corner ain't no way you Georgia Ann Muldrow's out-of-the-box 2015 hip-hop album, A Thought of Verse Unmarred, is laid out like a cinematic tale of a woman who started out as an unruly partier and slowly became enlightened. 
no way that you could take that I reckon you pace back or learn to embrace that gradually to drastically change when deep I used to roam wild on my number nine Jesse Jones Jesse Jones Jesse Jones's debut album is a dreamy confessional collection of songs that shares the inner workings of her personal struggles. On the closing track, Mental Illness, she opens up about her own history. This folk-inspired indie pop album melts in your ears. Jesse Jones's melodies are complex, her lyrics are fearless, and she delivers them softly. Her voice has a fluttering yet decisive tone. Number eight, Lower Dens, Escape from Evil. Escape from Evil is probably one of the most beautiful albums you'll ever hear in your life. Not only is singer Jader Hunter's voice mind-blowingly beautiful, but the band has this classy and classic shoegaze vibe. The album's second track, On Dean, is so simple and moving that it takes your breath away. Number 7, FKA Twigs, M3LL155X. Let me live through your voice. Mass appear, I feel in 10 breaths. It's a miracle if we're still alive. Can you British artist FKA Twigs puts a polish and spit shine on modern R&B pop and trip hop. Her 2015 release, M3LL155X, takes the sensual styles of bands like Portishead and morphs them into an off-putting and intriguing album that draws you in with its first note. Her work is a futuristic postmodern ode to electronic experimental pop music. Number six, Bjork, Volnicura. Bjork is simply a staple in 20th and 21st century contemporary music. Her 2015 release, Volnicura, is pretty much flawless, in my humble opinion. She's an otherworldly, whimsical artist who has perfected her own realm of artistic vision. Number five, Susie and the Banshees, live in Cologne, 1981. From the cradle bars comes bigger voices and spinning. You have no choice. The legendary post-punk goth rock band, Susie and the Banshees, released this live album in November. Live in Cologne is raw and harbors no frills. You can hear the band open with their hit Israel and perform their entire live set from a 1981 performance in Cologne, Italy. Number four, 
Number four, Suzanne Sunfer, 10 Love Songs. Suzanne Sunfer's 2015 release, 10 Love Songs, is an aggressively potent collection of eclectic love songs. The album's hit Fade Away is a thrilling electro-pop track that is inspiringly sexy and well-produced. Sunfer was fearless with this album and didn't shy away from exploring and mixing elements of EDM, pop, and even gospel hymns to make 10 love songs super interesting and full of surprises. And of course, Suzanne's voice is gorgeous throughout the entire album. Number three, Jill Scott, Woman. Hear ye, hear ye. Anybody that can listen, come listen. Having faith in the rest of you will be an amazing awakening. An ego the queen of queens, neo-soul artist Jill Scott, hit number one on the Billboard's charts this year with her album, Woman. The album grabbed from gospel and southern soul pop music as well as her expected smooth urban soul signature sound. The traditional tones don't overshadow Scott's ability to make versatile and modern tracks like Lighthouse, which melds and flows with ease and class. A girl not so unlike me, sick with some shit that just shouldn't be, cause her desire to be desired in his way would pee pee, oh wow. Cookie. Stop now, count your lessons. All these kids in the system. Number two, Leanne Le Havis, Blood. No sweet nothing could ever be turned into something new. No grand gesture could ever be made to measure you. More widely known in European countries, Leanne Le Havis 2015 release, Blood, is a moody, powerful, alternative soul album. Her mature, raspy vocals don't let on that this songstress is only 26 years old. It's clear she has a bright future. She's got a star power potential like a young Aretha Franklin. Blood is a confident R&B effort and there's an endearing and touching energy to this album. Been saving up my time so I could spend it all on you. On you. Oh, all I need is to see you smile. And finally, number one, Erica Badu, but you can't use my phone. My obsession of 2015, Erica Badu's surprise Thanksgiving mixtape, but you can't use my phone. This collection of songs produced by newcomer producer Zach Witness is everything. On this telephone-themed album, Badu sounds like she breathes new life into her creative flow. All right, that's all the favorites we've got, except for one bonus one, my favorite listener comment of the year. We got really proactive in 2015 about asking y'all to write in and let us know what you think of the show. And if you donate to Bitch to let us know on your order comments that you listen to the podcast. We were so overwhelmed with the notes you sent in. We got so many nice and thoughtful emails from listeners. It's easy for us to get really burned out on trying to make the world a better place. So reading people's sincere thoughts on the podcast really helped make me feel like the feminist work we do matters. I wanted to share my favorite comment of the year, which comes from listener Megan. She writes, 
I wish there was an accessible parallel universe, which, okay, wait, first of all, I have to say that I like how she says an accessible parallel universe, an important criteria, because what use is a parallel universe if we can't get to it? Okay, anyway. I wish there was an accessible parallel universe where you had time to keep producing multiple propaganda casts every week. Or even if your current propaganda just went for longer. I'm just saying, your work is loved and exciting, and if you went longer, it would be like eating rich chocolate with a well-paired red wine in a bubble bath while having a pedicure. That is what propaganda is to me. Oh, that just makes my heart melt. Okay, Megan, thanks for our new slogan. Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast that's like eating rich chocolate with a well-paired red wine in a bubble bath while having a pedicure. Thanks for listening all year, friends, and be well in 2016. This episode was sponsored by the Feminist Sticker Club. Remember, you can get a fun feminist sticker in the mail every month for only $2.50. Join Feminist Sticker Club and you'll help support independent artists and feminist causes. Learn more at feministstickerclub.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.